You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Just the other day, former President Trump announced he had gotten his booster shot. It may be one of the few things he and I agree on. Though President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump may agree on the need for vaccines, it will be the Supreme Court that decides whether to allow two federal vaccine mandates to take effect nationwide in the first argued cases of 2022, a year that will be consequential at the court, with cases involving a range of controversial social issues, from abortion and climate change to gun rights and religion. Joining me is Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. Kimberly, David Cole, the National Legal Director of the American Civil Liberties Union, told you that this is going to be the most important term in decades. Explain why. Well, even with the cases that the justices have already heard in 2021, this is going to be a blockbuster term. So I'm thinking about cases on abortion, gun rights, and religious freedoms. These are all cases that have already been argued, many of which are waiting an opinion in 2022, and would really set the term apart from really what's been a series of blockbuster terms. But the justices do have a small window to add new cases to that explosive docket. We've already recently seen them add the vaccine mandates, which is the first thing they're going to tackle when they return to the courtroom in January. But there are a lot of other cases that are on schedule to meet this mid-January cutoff to add new cases to the term. And many of those really show how the court's cases are increasingly intersecting with some of the biggest social debates and are really fueling questions about the court's legitimacy. The court is fast-tracking, and I do mean fast, two cases on Biden's vaccine mandate. The two cases are going to be the first thing the justices tackle on January 7th. And as you said, they are really two separate mandates. One involves the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's mandate, uh, more frequently known as OSHA. And the question there is whether OSHA has the authority to adopt the so-called shot or test 
mandate for certain large employers or whether it really overstepped its congressional mandate to develop standards that, you know, typically are intended to ensure safe and healthy workplaces. You know, think of things like falls or hazardous materials or dangerous machines. Now, OSHA has been asked by the Biden administration to expand that to the vaccine mandate. And then the second challenge is one involving the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. We always have to have a bunch of alphabet soup in these cases. And these apply to healthcare facilities that accept these federal funds. And it's really the same issue there, whether or not CMS went too far in adopting these sweeping rules and whether or not Congress has to say more before it can enact such a mandate like this. So I looked at the calendar. You know, usually the court has arguments on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I saw that this was on a Friday. That's so unusual, isn't it? It is really unusual. And I think to understand why it's scheduled on a Friday, we have to talk a little bit about what's called the shadow docket or the court's emergency docket. This procedure is really a kind of a special way for the justices to consider things that come up kind of outside of the normal course of its regular decision-making process. So think of things like months-long briefing arguments and then a really considered opinion that could go for dozens of pages. Instead, in these shadow docket cases, we tend to get a one-sentence ruling, you know, very expedited. And you know that that particular process caught a lot of criticism after the court required the Biden administration to keep a Trump-era immigration policy in place. And then that six-week abortion ban out of Texas that the court allowed to go forward. And so even though we've seen some pushback from the justices about that criticism, they have taken the extraordinary step of taking, you know, these vaccine cases, that Texas case, off of the shadow docket, setting them in argument more in line with how they traditionally do things. And that's why we see such a rapid schedule for these vaccine cases. So the environment comes into focus on February 28th in three cases. They're all from the D.C. Circuit Court. That's right. And these cases concerning the environment are really similar to these vaccine mandate cases in that they go to the ability of administrative agencies to pass sweeping rules that could potentially cost businesses billions of dollars. And it really shows the Robert Court's interest in administrative law. And before listeners start to tune out, <laughs> you know, it can be a very technical area of the law, but they have enormous impact. And so here, the justices will consider whether the EPA has the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from coal plants in an attempt to really rein in climate change. And, you know, the fact that the justices took this case is concerning for those who want really broad and sweeping reactions to climate change because they didn't have to take it. This is one of those cases where this particular program, the clean power plant, is not in effect. And so the Biden administration said, just hold on, let us figure out what we're going to do with it. But, of course, that didn't happen, suggesting that you know, there may be support on the court for saying the administration has just gone too far And, you know, this is really an area where Congress has to act. Another case the court didn't have to take also involves a Trump administration rule on the public charge doctrine. The Biden administration and the challengers agreed to dismiss the case. So it's a little confusing as to why the court decided to take the case. It is confusing. And, you know, again, this is one of those cases where it's 
seems like the justices are reaching out to decide this case when they really don't have to. The rule at issue here requires the government to consider whether a non-citizen is going to pull on public benefits when considering whether to grant them relief, like admission into the country. And, you know, like the Clean Power Plan, it's not a rule that's in effect right now. But the question here is for the justices, a procedural one. Again, you know, we see them tackling so many of these really big issue cases on procedural grounds rather than on the merits. And it's whether or not these GOP-led states can really pick up where the Biden administration left off and go ahead and defend the legality of this rule as the Biden administration says it no longer wants to do in federal court. Several of these cases seem to be sort of caught between two administrations. The Biden administration is also asking the court to consider whether it has to continue the Trump remain in Mexico policy. Yeah, we have really seen over the last five years, given that there's such a break between the Obama Trump and Biden administrations, this issue of changing administrations really cropping up in the Supreme Court. So in the past, there would be maybe a handful of cases where this would happen, where a new administration would come in and just say, we're going to take a whole new approach to this particular law. But by and large, administrations have continued to have kind of the same general interests, and that's just not the case today. And it will be really interesting to see when the next administration takes over, is, is this a trend that's going to continue, or is it something unique to Trump and to Biden? Coming up, I'll continue this conversation with Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, and we'll talk about some controversial cases that could make the docket. The House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol is considering the involvement of former President Donald Trump and wants documents from the Trump White House being held by the National Archives. Here are the committee chairman, Benny Thompson, and vice chair, Liz Cheney. The White House knew exactly what was happening here at the Capitol. We are getting a clearer picture of what happened, who was involved and who paid for it, and where the money went. And now Trump is using an interview Thompson gave to the Washington Post to try to get the Supreme Court to block the National Archives from turning over his documents. I've been talking to Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson. So, Kimberly, this is one of the cases the court could put on its argument calendar for 2022. So this was a recent case that came to the court just in the past week, and it's really the first time that the court has been asked to consider the legal ramifications of that January 6th attack on the Capitol. And it deals with the House Select Committee's attempt to get documents from the White House involving then-President Trump's actions on that day. Now, it's important to note that there was a similar battle, listeners may remember, over documents that recently reached the court, the battle over President Trump's tax returns. And there, the Supreme Court said that, you know, courts should really stay out of these disputes, that the political branches, Congress and the president have been able to work these disputes out in the past. And, you know, it should be hands off to the judiciary. Of course, the twist here is that this involves the Biden administration agreeing with Congress to turn over certain documents by waiving executive privilege for you know, documents that came up under a different administration. And so we're going to see if that makes a difference for the court and whether or not they say that Congress and the American people really have a great interest in these cases, that they should go ahead and be turned over. But importantly, as you mentioned, the justices have not agreed yet to take up this case. 
The House has asked the justices to expedite this case so that they can hear it this term. And I think what's really behind that is that you know, the House is working on this informal deadline of the midterm elections because, of course, a GOP takeover of the House could undo the whole commission. And on Wednesday, Trump's lawyers filed a supplemental brief asking the justices to look at Thompson's statements that the committee was considering making a criminal referral against Trump, arguing that it's outside the committee's purpose. Another case the court is being asked to take And this is unusual. In 2020, there was a landmark ruling about the sovereignty of Indian tribes. And now Oklahoma is asking the justices to reverse that ruling they just handed down. That's exactly right, Jude. And I think that's why this is one of those cases that court watchers are really keeping an eye on. As you mentioned, this case was a very recent case that came down five to four in favor of the tribe. And Oklahoma is now citing what it says is chaos following the ruling. And the state has asked the court outright just to overrule that brand new case. And it's a pretty significant ask, given that, you know, the state really made the same arguments in the first case, but they didn't win the day. And I think the ruling flipping the decision the other way is really going to be seen by many as an example of how the court is really just another political actor. And they're not deciding these cases based on the law, but instead, you know, based on their personal preferences and that really anything is up for grabs based on the makeup of the court at that time. So, I will be watching how the justices respond to that. You know, we know if this were the first time they were hearing the case, it's likely it would come down five to four the other way. But are they going to consider the potential questions about their legitimacy when deciding that case? The only thing that's really changed is Justice Amy Coney Barrett being on the court. That's right. And so that's why I think this is, like many of the cases on the court's docket, one of those cases that it's going to have implications beyond just the merits but really implications for the way that the court operates and its legitimacy going forward. There are a pair of challenges involving affirmative action programs at Harvard College and the University of North Carolina. The schools won at trial. Will the court want to add more controversy to its docket by taking these cases? If we're just looking at what the justices have said in the past, this does seem like a case that a majority of the court would like to take on and would like to say something about affirmative action and maybe pull it back a little bit. But again, you know, as we've been talking about this whole time, this is just such a blockbuster case that the justices might want to wait on that case until they can kind of get the lay of the landscape after one of these bombshell rulings come down. On the flip side, you know, if they're already doing all these other things and it seems like they're going to have implications for the midterm election, why not just go ahead and do it all and let the American electorate, you know, go from there. But I don't really have a sense of which way that's playing on the justices, but for sure, affirmative action is going to be a strategic grant for the justices, but which way strategically it goes, I don't know. One thing that is sure is you're going to be very busy this year. Thanks so much, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Former President Donald Trump's two eldest children have been subpoenaed by the New York Attorney General, who is investigating whether Trump's real estate business manipulated the value of key assets for tax and insurance purposes. Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump Jr. filed a joint motion in New York State Court to block the subpoenas, accusing New York Attorney General Letitia James of making an unconstitutional attempt to get testimony from the family members while they still face a separate criminal investigation. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. Michael, tell us a little bit about the AG's investigation. So, beginning in 2019, the Attorney General of the state of New York has had a civil inquiry focused on whether the Trump organization fraudulently inflated the value of its assets to secure bank loans, while at the same time understating them when he had to pay taxes on the same property. So her office now has this investigation about whether this dual valuation is part of a civil fraudulent scheme to deny New York its tax revenue. Why has it taken so long? It seems like something like that. You know, you need the papers involved, and then you could do the calculations. Well, if you have the papers, and if you have the testimony of witnesses to explain to you what those papers represent, then this case could have moved quicker. But the Trump organization 
has not cooperated. They've fought every subpoena and every effort to obtain the information to make the evaluation, and therefore we now are in year two of this case. So do you know why she's subpoenaing Don Jr. and Ivanka Trump? Well, Don Jr. and Ivanka Trump have been executives in the Trump organization. When Donald Trump became president of the United States, he turned over the business to his two children, his three children, actually, Eric as well. And each of them, therefore, has knowledge of the company's operations and how they valued things. And therefore, their testimony is relevant to um, the attorney general's determination of whether or not this was a fraud or this was appropriate business conduct. So now they already deposed Eric Trump in October of 2020. Is there a reason why he was deposed first or subpoenaed first? I don't know. Uh, Eric has had a large role in the operation of these companies, and uh, it may just simply be that he was the first one that they wanted to speak to. But I, I don't know why they chose the order they chose. I know, though, that they believe that all three of them have relevant testimony to answer the question of whether this was a fraud or whether this was not a fraud. The Trumps, Don Jr. and Ivanka, are asking a New York State judge to block the subpoenas. What are their grounds for doing that? What they say is that Ms. James, who is conducting a civil investigation, is improperly trying to sidestep the grand jury process that would apply in a criminal case, meaning in a criminal case, if you brought either Trump into the grand jury to take their testimony under New York law, they would be immunized from prosecution for their testimony, not so in a civil case. So what they're arguing is that really what she's trying to do is make an end run around the limits that the criminal investigators have because she's working with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, who has a parallel criminal investigation. So what they're saying is essentially she's trying to, with bad motive, bypass the restrictions of criminal investigations in order to get the information through the civil process, which she then will turn over to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and they will use it for the criminal prosecution. So do they have a point? If there's a criminal investigation going on, wouldn't they be foolish to testify in a civil deposition? Well, yes, possibly, depending on what they have to say. But in order for them to prevail in this case, what they'll have to do is prove that she is, in fact, abusing the civil process to gather evidence for a criminal case. They'll have to have a basis to prove the truth of that proposition, not just the bold statement of their belief that this is the case. Because the Supreme Court, in a case called U.S. versus Cordell, has held that evidence obtained through civil discovery can be used in a parallel criminal prosecution. There is this notion of parallel proceedings in the law where things which used to be only civil or administrative are now both civil and administrative and also criminal. And so the Supreme Court was asked to figure out whether or not this is appropriate, and the court held in Cordell and followed up with other cases where they basically said parallel proceedings are okay. You just have to make sure that things are done properly. 
and you have to measure the full sort of civil discovery rights. In civil discovery, the rule is full disclosure. Everyone gets to know what everyone else is doing, no surprises. In criminal, it's much more restrictive. And so the court said, as long as you're not you know, making this improper end around, it's perfectly normal uh, for this to occur. So they have to prove that it's, it's an end around, and then they have to just figure out what they want to do. They have these subpoenas, and they can simply say, you know what, we're going to take the Fifth Amendment because this may jeopardize us in the criminal case, and that's their, their right, but they can't necessarily bring it to a complete close. Do you know if Eric Trump fought his subpoena as well? Do you know if he used the same grounds? I don't know that he specifically argued the end-around theory that we've been discussing, but he too fought the subpoena. Usually they fight these things on them being overbroad and unnecessary, but in the end he lost his case, and I think that in the end Ivanka and Donald Jr. should lose their case, not because I have a political motive for saying should, but they should on the basis of the law that governs parallel proceedings and due process. Courts have generally ruled in parallel suits that there isn't a due process violation and they don't apply double jeopardy, um, but they do sometimes allow for various remedies such as a stay in the civil proceeding or a protective order in the civil proceeding until the completion of the criminal case. So the Trumps may say to the court, look, court, please stay the civil action until the completion of the criminal action. And that might be an, a, a winning argument for them. Or the court might say, no, these things can run in parallel to one another. We'll just make sure that the evidence is used properly as it is supposed to be used in a civil versus a criminal case. And if they were witnesses before the grand jury, they would get transactional immunity. Correct. That's their big argument. They're saying, look, if you want to hear from us about this, bring us into the grand jury, give us immunity, and we'll talk. But you can't force us to talk in a civil case and then use that evidence against us in a criminal case. The Supreme Court has said you can, um, but with you know qualifications to make sure that there isn't a um, improper process that's in place, um, some subterfuge that the government is using to obtain evidence that it couldn't otherwise properly obtain. So they attach to their papers tweets that the New York AG, Letitia James, has made and public statements to support their claim that she's operating in a dual role here. Is that convincing at all? No, because she's permitted to engage in a dual, participate in a dual process. What they're arguing in some sense is her motives are impure, that this case is a political witch hunt and therefore it should be brought to a close. So I think that they're really impugning her, you know, sort of integrity, her intentions in this case uh, more than they are saying that you can't do these things side by side, but they're saying she's, they call her all sorts of names, corrupt, attorney general and the like, because they say that this is all a witch hunt, phrases that we've heard them use in other contexts. And uh, former President Trump had sued her last month, 
along the same lines? Exactly. Trump is trying to bring an end to these, this litigation by saying essentially this is a political witch hunt and um, it should um, be called to an end. And courts, I think, are going to be very reluctant to, to do that, to, to impugn the, the integrity of the, the government in such a way as to cause the case to be brought to an uh, end is, I think, a very unlikely outcome. Yeah, so that's the question I have, because, you know, as you talk about former President Trump trying to delay other cases, for example, to delay the January 6th committee from getting his records, the aim there is to delay it until the midterms when likely the House will be turned over to the Republicans and the investigation will be terminated. But here, there's there's nothing like that. Any attorney general in New York is going to continue this investigation. So how do the delay tactics really help him in the end? They don't, and they shouldn't, but that's still his method of operation. When anyone accuses him in a, in a legal case, what he does is delay and fight back by attacking the integrity of the lawyers who are or the government agency that's bringing the case. This is just his standard method of operation. So he doesn't, you're exactly right that in New York, because we saw this already in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, Cyrus Vance, who started this investigation, has left office. He has, there's a, a successor head oh. of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, right? And uh, that person is proceeding with the case without missing a beat. If Miss James, who was going to run for governor but now no longer is, if she had won for governor, then her successor would pick up this case and they would just move it right along. So this is not like – you're exactly right. This is not like the Hill where he is trying to delay that in the hopes that the Republicans take over the House and kill the investigation. That's a very different end game. Here, there is no end game that this will that he'll be able to run out the clock. It's just this is what he does. And it remind us, he already took – the subpoena for records from his accountants to the Supreme Court. Remind us what happened there. He lost. He loses, essentially he loses all of these cases. All of these arguments that he makes that the government is not entitled to this, or this is this is a case born of political bad faith, or this is a witch hunt, all of those cases for his tax records and, and the like, he loses because they're not based in solid legal reasoning, they're based in, you know, sort of wishful political outcome-based thinking. And so that's why I say in this case, the law favors Ms. James being able to proceed, but the court could entertain various protective-styled orders to ensure that the Trumps are not penalized for sitting for the civil deposition in their criminal case. Thanks for being on the show, Michael. That's former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.